All right, we're going to go back to the book of Job, the second lesson on the book of Job. Somebody was asking me which chapters are going to skip. I'm, I, I, I'm not planning on skipping any chapters. I'm just not going to cover every verse on every chapter. We're going to get to the point where it becomes very repetitive, so we're going to cover themes that will go through like 20 chapters in, in a row. Anybody's a Shakespeare fan here? I know of one. Uh, there's a line in Hamlet that Claudius speaks and is somewhat well-known where he says, when sorrows come, they come not single spice, but in battalions. And he's speaking, that, uh, if you know, know the story, if you know the story of Hamlet, Claudius is his stepdad. He's married to Gertrude, who is Hamlet's mom. Is that, do I have that straight there, Doug? Yeah. I think that's how it is. And he's a villain. Claudius is the villain of the story, right? He's very uh, greedy and... Uh, sex craze kind of guy in, in the story of Hamlet. And the point of Claudius's statement is that bad things seem to come in bunches. Uh, we often use the expression, when it rains, it pours, to convey the same kind of idea. Now, whether Claudius's statement is true all the time is debatable. Right? We may feel that way, but it's debatable that trouble always comes in battalions. But it is definitely true of Job's experience in chapter 1 that we're going to look at tonight. Job was truly overwhelmed by a battalion of sorrows in Job chapter 1. I'd love, if you could, to open your Bible to Job chapter 1. That's going to be one of the few chapters that we're actually going to look at every verse. Um, We're going to do that to... uh, Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. These are going to be, I think, the only three chapters that we're going to look at verse by verse. And then after that, when you get to um, the discussion with the friends, we're going to now look one uh, themes that are going through those 20 or so chapters there in the middle. And then when you get to Job's response which is also takes three or four chapters. We're going to condense them and look at the themes of those chapters. And the same thing with Elihu, that also spends three or four chapters speaking. And then when God also spends three or four chapters of just asking questions, we're going to look at the themes that are there, um, because it is wisdom literature, as we saw last week. And one of the characteristics of wisdom literature is repetition, saying the same thing as many ways possible. So see, see if it sticks uh, to the people listening there. And before we even get to the new content of chapter 1, I'd like for us to review what we saw last week. And really, the lesson last week surrounded was, was built around seven questions that we asked the book of Job. The first one was, where, uh, who wrote the book of Job? And the answer is, God. Yes, God through a person well-versed in wisdom literature. Whoever wrote Job was, uh, was good at writing. He was not uh, you know, somebody who didn't have any skills. He was a very skilled writer. We also asked, when did the events in the book of Job take place? And we saw it about 2,000 years before Christ, around the age of the patriarchs. So you can put yourself in Genesis 12 to 50, somewhere in there. It's uh, likely, traditionally, uh, Job is placed in the same era as Abraham. That he was a contemporary 
of Abraham, though, they were far enough away where they probably didn't have any contact with each other. We also ask where did the events in the book of Job took place, take place, and we saw it took place in the land of Uz or Uz, however you want to say that one. And we saw that uh, it's likely modern day uh, either uh, northern Saudi Arabia or southern Jordan, right where those two countries meet, which was the land of Edom during the time of uh, the ancient Near East. We also asked, how is the book of Job structured? And we saw that you can bunch some chapters together. Chapters 1 and 2 form a historical prologue. What we read in chapters 1 and 2 is prose. And it's a historical prologue. Then when you get to chapter 3, the author changed from prose to poetry. And it's, it's not poetry like we think, but like I think of poetry. I'm, a, I'm not a... I've never been trained in poetry, so for me... A poem is something that rhymes. I know that that doesn't have to be the case and so on. And it's definitely not the case in Hebrew poetry. Symmetry, uh, rhythm, uh, form are more indicators of poetry in Hebrew than than words rhyming uh, in the end. Um, And so chapter 3 shifts shifts to to poetry and is is the chapter where we find Job at his best. That's the best picture of Job, is right there in chapter 3. That's where he reacts to the things that happened to him in chapters 1 and 2. And uh, he cries out to the Lord. And, and then and picking up, starting chapter 4, all the way through chapter 27, we have three cycles of conversation between Job and his friends, where they go back and forth. And we saw last week that often in answering his friends, instead of talking to them, Job changes to talk to God. And in, in essence, God is not, Job is not arguing with his friends. He's actually arguing with God. The point that says, I wish there was an umpire here. There was a judge here. If there was a judge here and he saw my case, he would rule against God. That, that's the type of thing. And, and, it, and then that, you, now that makes sense then for God to come and say, Hey, Job, when I created everything, where were you? Did I ask you what I should do? No, because Job thought that he could prove God wrong at that point. And then after that, we have chapters 28 through 31, where Job summarizes his argument against his friends and against God, as if Job said, let me repeat one more time, so that uh, so you can get what I'm saying. And that's when Elihu comes in. And as I said, a lot of scholarship thinks Elihu is a bad guy. I think he's a good guy when you look at what he says. And the fact that he's not listed, the three friends are listed at the end God, uh, when God says he's mad at them. But Elihu is not. So I think he was a, was a good guy, and what he was saying was good. And then God speaks for, from chapter 38 to 41, and then we come to the epilogue, another historical little snippet at the end where Job is restored. Remember, he has more kids than before. He has more cattle than before, more land than before, more servants uh, than uh, before at that point. So that's the structure of Job that we saw last week. And then we ask, what is the literary genre of the book of Job? Do you guys remember? Yes, pretty much all of them <laughs> in the Old Testament. You have, you have prose, you have poetry, you have uh, parallelism, you have repetition, you have acrostics in the, in the middle of so uh, things that uh, use the same letter of the alphabet and so on, all mixed in the book of Job. So is largely generally called wisdom literature. So it goes along with Proverbs, and goes along with, with uh, Ecclesiastes, 
and the Song of Solomon, not because they talk about the same thing, but because they have the same sort of form and so on. Like, you, you read Proverbs, you read Job in English, you think, there, these are nothing alike. But there is a literary uh, similarity between those, those books. And then we ask, why was the book written? And uh, I, I told you that's not necessarily to explain. The book wasn't written to explain why evil exists. The book has really explained that to, to, to get across the idea that the righteous also suffer. That because God knew that there's a tendency in our hearts to think if we're really good, good things are going to happen to us. If we're really bad, bad things will happen to us, which is generally true in the book of Proverbs. But in life, bad things happen to good people as well, and that's the point that the book of Job wants to make, and he spent 42 chapters to make that point. And then I ask, why should you care about the book? Well, the main important thing is it's in the Bible. It's one of 66 books that God gave us. You know, of all the books, he gave us these 66. It's in the Bible. It's this word. We read it because we care for it. But also because it guides us through suffering. All of us, if we live long enough, will suffer in our lives. And the book uh, will help us through that. And you might say, you did all that in five minutes. Why come you couldn't do that last week in five minutes? But that's just a review of what we saw last week. Any questions about this screen? Yes, Tilly. I was just wondering if there's any um, historical background of how the book of Job came to be published. Where it came from, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, how did the book of Job come about? Like, who wrote it and so on? And how it came, became... So it's, it's likely that it was oral, orally transmitted for several generations. Uh, think about it. The alphabet was invented in 22 BC, 2200 BC, sorry. And it was invented in the area where today would be the Nile Delta, kind of, by the precursors of the Phoenicians. So back then, 150 years is like tomorrow, meaning information doesn't... Um, propagate very easily, very fast. So it's possible that when Job happened, that story became known and people passed from generation to generation and God providentially kept it faithful till someday somebody, you know, perhaps around Moses' time, actually wrote it down and became part of the, the um, Jewish, the, the, the people of God's literature. And we know that by the time Ezekiel comes around, the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, now, Job is considered the word of God because they quote it and refer to it, and they refer to it as historically accurate. So somewhere in those... So Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they're uh, right before exile, right during the exile, so the 600 B.C. So between 2000 B.C. and 600 B.C., Job got written, <laughs> and people start recognizing it as being the word of God. Yeah, just a little window of time in there. Any other questions? All right, so um, in this opening chapter that we come to tonight, in, in four distinct scenes, to keep up the Shakespeare theme, there's four scenes in this chapter. We meet the human hero of the story, who is Job. We meet the villain, who is Satan. We, meet, we, we find out the core plot tension of the book, because every good story has to have a tension, Right? As we have something that needs to be resolved, and we, we see that in chapter one, and then we also see 
So in that, that tension is going to set, the plot's going to set the rest of the book up. All right, so that's, that's kind of the outline for chapter one. And we come to scene one, where we meet our human hero. Look at verses one through five. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 male donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. To stop there, seven sons, there's a party every, what this means, there's a party every day of the week in one of the sons' houses, and the sisters would be invited. So seven sons, seven days, every day of the week, a party in the house, in one of the house. Uh, verse 5, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. In many ways, Job is a mystery to us. The man Job, we don't know a lot about him. He doesn't show up in any genealogy in the Bible. You know, those chapters that we generally skip in our Bible reading, Job is not in them, so we don't have to worry about having missed uh, Job in those. He's unconnected with the history of Israel, and he's unconnected with the main thread of redemption that comes through Abraham, even though he probably was living the same time. But he's unconnected with that, and he seems to appear out of nowhere in the story of the Old Testament. And this chapter doesn't tell us much about Job, but it does tell us three, at least three things about Job. Not, the first one, and this might sound obvious to you, but it's in verse 1. There was a man in the land of us. It tells us that Job was a man. And I don't mean that in the sense, oh, he was male, which he was because that's what it says here, but that's not the point that I wanted to, like, to make. I wanted to try to make the point that he was a historical person. But not only was he a historical real man, he, was also, he also fulfilled the typological role as representative of Humanity. He was a man, just like we are. He was a human, just like us, and therefore we can identify with and learn from Job's experience. We can see that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 was true in Job's experience. And we can see that when we're going through suffering, we can see, well, Job has gone through it. He's gone he got to the end and God sustained him, we can do that too. We can see that there's no temptation that overtaken us except such as common to men. That is, we don't deal in temptation. In the New Testament, there's only one word for temptation, test, struggle, or trial. It's all the same word, and English, the English translators try to interpret what context to use the word. In this context, I think the word trial is better than temptation because of what is going on before in that chapter. And we learn here that there's nothing that we go through that's uncommon to men, which means two things. One is we're not dealing with superhuman stuff. What I can't bear it is beyond my... No, if you're, you're not dealing with anything that's superhuman. Two, you're not the only one to have done this. Other people have suffered the same way, have struggled the same way, and are able to get through, which is similar to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, that we have this cloud of witness cheering us on, saying it can be done. 
this life can be done. This life of Christ can, this race can be done. And then he says, but God is faithful that even in that struggle, He's not going to allow us to be tempted beyond or tried or tested or suffer beyond what we're able to bear. And on top of that, with the trial, He's going to provide a way of escape. And this is very interesting, that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape is not the removal of the trial necessarily, of the suffering, but the ability to bear it through. And, and Job was just a man, the same kind of man that we are, same kind of person, human that we are, and we're able then to see that too. So Job was a man, but this chapter also tells us that Job was, a, was rich, a rich man. In verse 2, he says that he was rich because he had many children, ten children. And uh, it's, we, we have to be totally convinced that children are good. Not morally, they're bad. They're sinners, <laughs> right? They're a little bundle of sinful nature. But children are good. They're a blessing from the Lord. And as a Christian church, we can never stop affirming that. Children are never a bother. They're good. And if you think about it, that's how we're going, in one way, that we're going to overtake this nation. The, drop, the, 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 the uh, procreation rate dropped for the first time below two this year. Uh, and in order to propagate, to, to not propagate, what's the word I'm looking for? Huh? No, not replacement. Not promulgate. Perpetuate. In order to perpetuate a culture, you need a birth rate of 2.2. Right? So you do the math. If we Christians, and I'm not joking, this is a serious strategy. If we Christians keep on having kids and training them in the way of the Lord, we will change this culture. If we think generationally, we will change this culture because the heathen are having less kids. Now the sad thing is that the Muslims are having lots of kids as well, and that's one of the ways they are taking over Europe. So and it's interesting that Job is considered a rich man because he had lots of kids, which makes a lot of sense when it was an agrarian society. And you need a lot of, lots of people to work in the land, and the more kids you had, the more workers you had for free uh, there too. But he was also rich because he possessed great material wealth. In verse 3, he lists a bunch of things he owned, all the oxen and cattle and donkeys and, and sheep and, and, and camels. And he was also rich because he had a good public reputation. If you look at the end of verse 3, he says he was well thought of in the place he was there. So he was, a, he was a man, he was a rich man, excuse me, he was also a righteous man. In verse 1, it says, the end of verse 1 says, And that man, that's Job, was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. He was a righteous man. The description of Job as blameless conveys that his external behavior consistently displayed his personal righteousness. Being blameless is not being perfect, but is to behave in a way that is consistent with what you say you believe concerning Jesus Christ. That's what being blameless is. My, uh, the, our, our commentator, James Durham, remember said that there's a, a Scottish Puritan Presbyterian commentator that wrote, which was something that was nothing short of a miracle. There's a Puritan short commentator. Those don't exist very much. Uh, there's another version that is a result of 10 years of preaching on the book of Job. That's several volumes. Uh, Thomas Manton's commentary on the book of Jude, which is 
25 verses long, is almost 400 pages. So you can see that, that writing short commentators, commentaries was not the thing for Puritans. But this one is like 100 pages long. And James Durham says concerning Job, he was a perfect and upright man, not without sin, but as the dispute shows, sincere, no hypocrite, and one that feared God and skewed evil, one that had real fruits of holiness and piety. So he was a blameless man. His, what he did matched what he professed to believe. And God attested to that. God put a stamp of approval on the blamelessness of Job. Look at verse 8. Then the, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth. And a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Can you imagine God saying that about you? God is being the one that puts the stamp of approval on your holiness, saying that you are a blameless person. You know, so Job's character was expressly endorsed by God himself. And understanding Job's personal righteousness is also key. So understanding his personal holiness is also key to the story of the book because it, it too figures prominently into Satan's challenge of God. Satan argued that Job's integrity was conditioned solely on his prosperity. That Job is only holy because everything is going well in his life. Job is only act the way that you want him to act, God, because everything is going well in his life. If God were to take away Job's prosperity, then Job's righteousness would fail, was Satan's argument. So it's important that we get across that, no, Job was a blameless, was a holy man, was a righteous, upright man in the sight of man and in the sight of God as well. And the Satan's argument is going to be proven wrong at the end. Any questions about the first scene of chapter 1? Right, come to scene 2, and in scene 2 we meet the villain. Every, story, every good story must have a villain, Right? That's just, if you look at the Bible, the Bible has that the same, the, all those arches of good story. It has a plot, it has a, a hero, it has a villain, it has a, um, everything that you need there to have a good story. And so it's true of the book of Job because every compelling story features an antagonist, something that you're going to, somebody you're going to root against. In Job's case, that antagonist is. Satan himself. And it's important to remember that Job was not privy to what was going on in chapters 1 and 2. Remember that, right? Job has no clue of what's going on in heaven in chapters 1 and 2. As, as far as he knows, God just got mad at him. That's, that's really what he says in his arguments. Just God has unjustly gotten mad at me. And that's not the case of what's going on here. I want you to notice, because something here that, that should naturally rob you wrong. Something that it doesn't seem right to us. You know, something that if we were God, we've done different. I think we all would say, I think I've done that differently. We are wrong, but I think that's how we would react. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? What is God doing here? It's God who draws attention to Job. It's Satan didn't come, Hey, can I go bug Job? That wasn't how it worked. God said, Hey, Satan, have you considered 
of all the people in the world if you consider this guy right here. And then Satan responded immediately by launching an accusatory attack in verses 9 through 11. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around it? I think I've said this before, but every time I, I read this passage, Tom, uh, Tim Hawkins comes to mind. If you haven't seen, go Google or YouTube it, uh, Tim Hawkins and the hedge of protection, and you'll know what I'm talking about. But not now, later. Have you not, verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan brings accusations against God's people. Is that how he's described in Revelation? As the accuser of the brethren? That's what he does. And he often accuses us as well, uh, to us, and drives us to guilt that perhaps shouldn't be there. So he, he bursts, Satan bursts into the heavenly court, not to worship God, but rather to bring accusations against God and his people. His goal was to destroy what God had built. That's how he operates. Satan's goal is to destroy what God builds. And in this attack, Satan is trying to destroy the fundamental credibility of Job, but also of God. I think it's important that we understand that Job is merely a pawn used by Satan in a cosmic chess game aimed at undermining God's character and his worthiness to be worshipped. What Satan is saying is that, God, you're not worthy to be worshipped. The only reason anyone would ever worship you is if you bought them with blessings. That, that's what Satan is saying. God, if you remove all the blessings, there's no way in the world that this man or any man would worship you. And that's what Satan does. He comes to attack, to destroy, and to undermine the kingdom of God by discrediting God to his people and trying to discredit his people to God as well. Isn't that what he did to Eve in the garden? Has God really said? No, what, he really, what he's trying to do here, Eve, he's trying to get you from being like him. That's why he so meanly told you not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the, of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, because he doesn't want you to be like him. And that's the, that's the villain of our story. The villain's not the three friends. The villain is not Job. The villain is... Satan in the story. Any questions? Uh, Jerry. <clears throat> Satan's access to God is a question mark I've always had. I, I kind of envisioned Satan was cast down to earth or cast mm -hmm. out of heaven. Mm -hmm. But here it sounds like he has free communications to go to see God anytime he wants to. Yes. So the question is, uh, how do you explain this access to God that Satan has and so on? Uh, it, it, God is everywhere, correct? So in that sense, Satan and God, not because Satan is everywhere, but because God is everywhere, Satan and God are, are in the same created space, right? And uh, it's obvious that this has some figurative language here because God doesn't have a body, at, in, not even at this time, right? So this interaction is happening... Um, 
not necessarily in, in the material world, in the, in the spiritual world. And there are other parts of the New Testament where it speaks of God, of Satan having access to the presence of God, whatever that means, and have that interaction there. And it seems like that once Christ died and rose again, that those interactions got limited. Satan got bound to a, a different level of existence, kind of, and he no longer has the ear of God in that sense. Does it make sense? And that's why, that's why Satan, uh, Jesus says, and I think it's in Luke 12, now, I've seen Satan falling out from heaven and, and, and so on. And so I think it, the ministry of Jesus Christ caused that to happen. That's the best I can do shooting from the hip. <laughs> Tilly. Okay, so here we have the two, two elements of this, this story. We have our hero, the human hero, Job. We have the, the, the villain in Satan. And then we also have the plot, the, the tension that's going to be created here, that's going to carry out through the rest of the book. But we're, not going to, we're going to save that to next week because our time is running out. And the tension is going to be exactly that. Satan trying to prove that God is not worthy of worship, and God just saying, I don't have to prove that. That's just reality. You try to do your thing, and you're going to see that at the end, I'm still worthy of worship. Any questions before we close tonight? All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Job. We thank you that you speak to us through a book that was written over 4,000 years ago, and yet is as current as in the day that it was written. We pray that uh, you would help us to embrace the idea of suffering in our lives that's coming, coming from your hand. And we pray that we would learn from it, that we would learn to worship you, and that we would not be seeking you just because you've blessed us, but because you've saved us in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.